welcome to No Silly Questions, an education podcast for parents with your hosts, Danielle Freilich and Jordana Fruchter, two New York City educators, school leaders, and friends. Over the years, we've received every question in the book from parents trying to understand the landscape of learning, development, and education. On this podcast, we bring you relatable, research-based answers from experts in the field. You'll hear from pediatric neuropsychologists, elected school officials, ed tech entrepreneurs, play advocates, professors of multiple intelligence theory, and more to bridge the gap of information and strengthen your parent toolkit. We want all parents to know that there is no such thing as a silly question. Maybe you're newly pregnant, dealing with fertility issues, or simply just trying to figure out this whole parenting thing. Part of has your back to help you find the answers and to also help you find the questions you didn't think to ask. Part of is a new social media platform centered around advice sharing. On Part of, you can connect with friends, their friends, and experts to find the right advice for you. Above all else, Part of is a place to connect authentically with people on topics that matter most to you and find community. You'll find us on the platform as education experts, where we can continue to provide answers to your questions. Check out their beta live on the App Store. Today, we address the no silly question, how has the pandemic impacted our schools and what is the federal government doing about it? We experience our schools at a local community level, but nonetheless, they are supported and organized in our nation's capital by the Department of Education. Today, we have a real treat to get a glimpse inside this office from a senior advisor to the Secretary of Education and learn about their top priorities. Hi, Nick, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. We are so excited and honored to have you on. I'll just introduce you a little bit if you don't mind. Nick Simmons serves as Senior Advisor to the Secretary of Education at the United States Department of Education. He led the department and Biden administration's work to safely reopen schools across the country and now helps lead the work to support student recovery from the learning loss and mental health stress caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. And he holds a master's degree in public policy from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, a master of business administration from Harvard Business School, and a bachelor's degree from Yale University. Pretty impressive bio you've got there. Oh, God, I'm going to throw up. (laughs) (laughs) So we just heard the highlights, but we'd like you to share directly how you came to hold your current and incredibly impactful position. Ah, well, thank you, Danielle and Jordana. I'm sure you know we go through your resumes, and it would just be just as exemplary. And the impact you both have had has been has been so cool. So yeah, so out of undergrad, the first thing I did out of school, just like you, Danielle, was to try to be as noble as I possibly could, and so that took me right to Wall Street. <laughs> <laughs> I went, I got sucked in by the bright light and went to UBS Investment Bank and soon discovered within about, I don't know, eight months that I hated that. I was miserable. There was really nothing about it that sparked joy or, or got me out of bed in the morning. And, you know, reflecting on why that was, I realized that all the things that did bring that out of me in college were the times that I spent 
you know, working directly with children or on policy issues, serving as a tutor or working on education programs. So I was 23 and decided to roll the dice and just see, you know, what would it be like to, to teach and, and, you know, really think, dig into that policy area as well. So I joined Success Academy, where we, we overlapped Danielle. We did. We did. We did. And I thought that it would be maybe like a two-year, potentially like a Teach for America experience where I would try to be of service in, in, in my early 20s and, and sort of you know, get responsibility and really do something I was passionate about. But I ended up totally falling in love with where we worked. I ended up staying for four years. We were really building out the first middle schools in that network. I became the founding seventh grade math teacher. So at the time, there was, you know, just 30 seventh graders. And I think this year, there were like 5,000 of them. So this was the early days. As you mentioned, ended up serving in a leadership position and loved it. And while I really loved those children in my building, I also saw there were so many other issues that they were struggling with and, and millions more across New York and the country, whether that was education, housing, healthcare, policing, you name it. So I wanted to scratch another itch that I had, which was just public policy in general, and how at a systemic level do we try to tackle some of these problems. So I went to do a joint degree program in public policy and also an MBA, just to keep that managerial itch there as well, kind of straddling both, both worlds. And partly because of who was president at the time, partly because of just my interest. I got very, very interested in, in state and local policy. Uh, federal was a little <laughs> sort of not, not an option for me, at least at that point. And so got very interested in governor's offices and mayor's offices. And so after grad school, took a job as a senior advisor to Governor Ned Lamont in, in Connecticut. And so as you mentioned, you know, within six months, COVID-19 broke out. Wow. Yeah. And it was really a governors and mayors, I think we're so key first year to managing the pandemic. And so did lots of different things there. But one of them, the governor asked me to help oversee the school reopening work that we were doing and supporting students through remote and hybrid learning. And I worked very closely with a man named then State Commissioner Miguel Cardona, mm. who was the Connecticut head of our education system. And we were just really in the trenches together day to day, trying to do everything we could for, for kids closing the digital divide, keeping them safe in COVID. And so when President Biden tapped him to help run that process, we'll be the Secretary of Education, he, he asked me to come along and get the band back together down in DC. And so for the last year, I've been trying to help lead our school reopening work and the recovery work that you mentioned. That's really interesting, Nick. And I think that later on, we'll want to dig a little deeper into the differences between working on a more local level and working, you know, in the more federal level. But just to begin with, can you tell us a little bit more about what your role is like supporting the Secretary of Education? Yeah, yeah. Well, first, the Secretary is just a terrific, incredible human being. And he's one of the smartest and sort of kindest people I've ever worked with. So I'll just say off the bat, the day-to-day -day experience is pretty great to get to work with someone like that. So we, in, in, the, in the early days of the administration, we built out essentially a COVID sort of SWAT team. One of the president's top priorities that he named on his campaign and in his transition was to reopen all schools in his first 100 days. And at the time, there was not a lot of guidance for how to do this. There wasn't a lot of sort of consistent support or resources for schools on how to just safely reopen. And so a lot, so a lot of the work has been that process. When, I, when we first came here, there were only 46% of schools 
were fully open. But by the start of this last school year, we were at 99%, which was we're very proud about. But in between, there was, you know, the Delta virus, the Omicron or variant, I should say. There was vaccines came out for five to 11 year olds. Vaccines came out for 12 to 17 year olds working on vaccines for younger than five year olds. So there's just a lot of consistent management that has to happen. And so we work very closely with the White House on that. And then there's also I, I think we'll speak about this later, but Congress passed the American Rescue Plan, which includes one hundred and twenty one billion dollars to support schools with not only reopening, but a lot of my work now is helping students recover from the learning loss, the social emotional trauma, the attendance crisis, the dropout crisis. And so that that's more of what I do now. Awesome. So we definitely want to hear more about the American Rescue Plan and your current priorities. But if you wouldn't mind sort of zooming out, we'd love to hear sort of from your seat. How do you view the U.S. sort of and where we are in the quality of our public education, right? So how do we compare to other countries in the quality of our public education? Are there any other countries that we should look to as a model? And are we improving in our ability to educate kids over time? Yeah. So I think with so many things like the United States in the United States, the top 10 to 15 percent of performers, whether that's wealth, education, et cetera, are generally are going to be you know, at the best, some of the best in, in the world. But like so like but like what we all know is that we also have a terrible inequality problem in our in our country. And so when you take the the pop, student population as a whole, we perform generally 18th or 19th in math compared to the rest of the world, 10th or 11th in reading and writing. Is that using like the PISA international benchmarking? That would be, be using PISA. Yeah, okay. exactly. And, you know, where we are in terms of our sort of post-secondary skills, a lot of different parts of the world define that differently in college, university, workforce training, but we, we, we fall behind there as well, just in terms of the skills needed for the 21st century. And so internally, if you look at test scores, you know, only some 8%, 8 to 12% of black eighth grade boys, for instance, only 8 to 12% can read or write on grade level. Wow. You know, one third of all students before the pandemic in low income cities were, were chronically absent. We could go on and wow. on. There, there's a lot of optimism <laughs> at the end of the story, I promise. But but the countries that to, to what you what you mentioned, Danielle. So I've I've visited a few, and I I really so I feel like there's two camps. There's the very testing oriented parts of the world, which would be like South Korea, China, Japan, who perform really really high in our the PISA tests. And then there are a little less testing oriented, but a little bit more whole child, well-rounded approaches. Places like Finland come to mind. And I think what we can do in the U.S. is, is much better at both of those. So there's a level of rigor and I think excellence that, uh, that you see from the teaching profession and from culturally within the schools and just the way the systems are designed that I think we could do better in the States. But I think we could also do a lot better thinking about the resources that we provide our families and our students to, to help them along the way. So Nick, you mentioned that there are two different camps. There are the countries that focus a lot on testing and the countries that focus more on the whole child. If you had to kind of think about the most kind of interesting or 
important or impressive things that you see come out of of both that you would really want to you know focus on in the U.S.? What would they be? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think on the rigor side, there's so many things that you know I think we can improve in the states. So, for instance, you know, school starting at 7 a.m. and and ending at 2:30 p.m. is a pretty arbitrary and kind of legacy of an agrarian economy. Right. Where Students need, students needed to be out of the classroom by two thirty to sort of go home and, and help out. Same thing with a three month summer break. It's sort of all kind of is all based on you know harvest. I, I think we are at about one hundred and eighty days of school, but if you add up all the hours, we really trail behind the rest of you know many other high performing countries, and that that really more than anything just exacerbates inequality because families that have the resources can can provide things for their students after school. Maybe one parent doesn't work and there can be can be home or you can pay for soccer practice. One one step that always sticks out to me is 60% of the entire achievement gap in the U.S. can be explained by what happens over summer. So just summer alone, wealthy students generally gain about a month or two of learning and less wealthy students just fall behind. So I think that's one example where we could just sort of increase the rigor, the time on task, extend the school day, extend the school year. And then on the whole child, I mean, it's a that is a sort of an issue that is much broader in the United States and our social social net safety net or, or sort of lack thereof. But, you know, if there is if you are worrying about exorbitant healthcare costs, if you, you know, racist policing, lack of access to healthy food, sort of just all of the we're one of the only countries in the world that doesn't have paid family medical leave. So mothers that get pregnant, 50% of all moms in America don't have access to that. So you could literally be fired for having a child or, you know, maybe you have a child on a Friday and you have to be back and work on a Monday. So there are just so many different parts of our system that make it harder for students and families to succeed. That's really interesting. Say that in the Department of Education, you're looking at school hours or length of the school year. What does that process look like if you think that there is an important change to make? It's interesting to understand what decisions are made on the more local level versus what decisions are made on a more national level. Yeah. So on the national level, we are not a centralized system. We are a very disaggregated system. So some of the countries I mentioned before have a universal centralized department of education, sort of very similar to an FDA, if you would. And they say, here are the standards we're going to use. Here's the curriculum we're going to use. We have a bunch of, you know, world experts working at the department. And um, here are what we think is going to be best for kids. And that is distributed. In the States, we have 14,000 school districts, each able to make a lot of, almost all of their own decisions on hiring, curriculum, after-school programming, school schedule. So to put in perspective, I mean, really finite, like the state of Montana has about 500 school districts for a very small population. Illinois has 1,000, Pennsylvania 550, Connecticut, where I'm from, small state, 220. And if you were in Germany, you know, just be one. So it is hard, Jordana, to sort of at the federal level, snap our fingers on, on some of these changes. But what I will say is one of the, in terms of after school or summer, and we can talk about this with the American Rescue Plan, there are so many exciting new things that are happening to close a lot of these access gaps with after school and summer and other resources. So I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about where we can improve. 
Right. And so is it true that, you know, you guys can incentivize the states to move in certain directions, right? So like no, like race to the top comes to mind, right? If you have certain theories about, you know, where states should be investing and then you sort of make it worth their while to do so. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Well, we have a bunch of grant programs where we have something called the the Promise Neighborhoods Program, where, for instance, it's modeled after the Harlem Children's Zone model where we really encourage and incentivize districts to put together holistic, community-oriented supports that and sort of incentivize partnership with your you know, local YMCA, with your local health clinics, with your um, childcare facilities. And so we have pots of money where districts can apply and create those networks. So we, we've got tons of those. We have those around education technology, we have those around treating homeless homeless students. A bunch of others is is one. To your point, Danielle. You know, Congress also holds the pen on a lot of the funding and and various requirements. So the last comprehensive bill that was passed, you know, so obviously No Child Left Behind was from the early thousands. Then sort of an updated version, ESEA, Can't Every Student Succeeds, came in 2015, 2016, where you can tweak sort of assessments and tweak graduation requirements and funding requirements. So we're trying our best. It's not quite Germany, but there's there's certainly some some tricks of the trade. Great. So Nick, let's shift a little bit to the pandemic. As much as, you know, I want to move forward from this conversation, I do know that <laughs> you were very, you know, that you were very involved in the strategy. And so can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, which which age group, which content area has COVID impacted the most? And what were some of the different ideas or strategies for how to s- handle the school reopenings? And I guess what were the biggest barriers? Yeah, yeah. Well, I will say nothing was clear about anything with, with COVID. It was, you know, I was we were in the briefing room with Governor Lamont every day, bringing in epidemiologists. No one in the room previously had any any experience with viruses. And then all of a sudden, the, our Department of Public Health became, you know, the most important group of people in the state by far. So, I mean, you know, we didn't know whether masks were important. We were buying hand sanitizers because we thought this was a surface to surface. We didn't, I remember we didn't let, we, we advised residents to not come close to dogs because we thought maybe Aww. dogs carried, carried, carried the virus. We just, we, we didn't know. COVID was a big win, big win for the dogs, though, <laughs> went the other direction. That's true. Yeah. So to your point, Jordana, we we didn't, and it took a lot of time. And there was, and so I think the decision in that, the end of the 2020 school year, so like March to June, was just a universal shutdown because there was just not enough information. And we also just didn't know how much this impacted young people as compared to the the elderly. Right. It took a while for all that to come out. And so schools are incredibly complicated, really difficult, difficult to manage environments for COVID. You know, we were talking six feet at first. You both are educators. You know how difficult it is to try to consistently get six feet, you know, in a high school of 3000 kids. Right. With all the classes shifting, you know, it's not like cohorts are always all together. So it was incredibly difficult. We, we had some really, really great experts like Dr. Fauci's of the world. Scott Gottlieb helped us a bunch. And, and so finally, it, it did become clear how, how schools could do this. And so we worked really closely in collaboration with our Department of Education and Department of Public Health. We had weekly calls with our superintendents 
did the same thing at the federal level, sort of weekly calls with teachers groups, parent groups, superintendent groups, school board groups. I think their CDC was, they get a lot of heat, but were really, really thoughtful and adaptive to the situation. So, so that was, you know, it was, it was certainly a challenging time. It was, I think it was really like a lesson in sort of crisis leadership and there were so many heroes along the way. So I was just proud to be part of it. Okay. So we'd love to hear more about the American Rescue Plan. So if you can give us the download, that would be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of money. That's like the headline out there, which is good news. So this was one of the first big bills that President Biden surpassed with with Congress was the American Rescue Plan. It's a $1.9 trillion support package to support Americans in all facets of life with the pandemic. $122 billion of those dollars was tagged for schools to support the, the reopening. So, you know, ventilation, PPE, staffing shortages, testing, vaccinations. But at this point, this was, you know, April 2021. And as we were turning the corner on school closures, a lot of this money is meant to be and is being implemented to support schools with all of the work that I've mentioned before that we're, we're working to do to help students catch up address learning loss, have students fall back in love with learning again after 18 months of closures. So that money is out there and we spend, you know, right now, night and day, trying to make sure that every last dollar, you know, goes to good use. So you had mentioned, you know, that there was already a national achievement gap and sort of inequity between students that have access to quality schools and those that don't. And it sounds like the pandemic has sort of widened that gap. And so while school opening is a, you know, an obvious and necessary first step just to get kids in the building, right? What is it going to take to close that gap that's now been enlarged? And are there proven methods for remediation? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So to put it into context, the fifth grade class that was, if you, it was in fifth grade when the pandemic started. So March, 2020, any idea what grade those kids are going into this fall? Eighth? Freshman. Nine. Wow. So the pandemic started when you were in fifth grade, and it's still happening as you're going into your freshman year of high school. So it's it's hard to believe, but parts of this pandemic looked very different. Sometimes you were just completely closed, and now you're just managing it. But it has been a sort of rough, rough couple of years. And, you know, we think about, I always think about even that eighth grader who, let's say, downtown Cleveland or in L.A., where schools needed to be closed for 18 months. You know, they left when they were in eighth grade or with a seventh grader, I should say. And then schools opened and now they have to be going to be a freshman in high school. You know, the average student missed about 65 days of school. In America, if you miss more than um, 10 days of school, we, we consider you chronically absent. And so now there's the average student has missed about 65 because of so much disruption. And so a lot of our job and what we focus on and keeps us up at night is just think about these scenarios. You have first graders who showed up to school who didn't even know how to hold a, hold a pencil. Right. Because all they'd, ever, all they'd ever known was remote learning. And that's only if your internet worked and you had a parent who could stay at home with you. Right. You mentioned the digital divide. Can you just define that for our listeners? Yeah. So it's... Pre-pandemic, it was something like 30% of all Americans didn't have quality enough internet access to be able to consistently you know, hold a Zoom call. 
or be in uh, you know Google Meets. And so a lot of money and resources went into closing that. But you know, as we've discussed, all a lot of the solution happened in you know in inequitable ways. It's like if you don't even have the hardware or software, right, to engage right. in remote learning if and when it's offered, right? right? And those are the days that are counting towards your attendance record. So you could see how complicated and intractable this is and and just how great the need is, you know, to solve, you know, what's been created. Right. I mean, Danielle, you and I both think back on students that we taught in Harlem who, you know, we know we know that they would have three or four siblings generally living in a two bedroom apartment, both parents working and just trying to imagine how hard it would be at home, you know, to have four or five different internet connections going up for four or five different classrooms. The parents aren't there to help or support. It's just, it was just very difficult. Right. It's a total frenzy, not to mention how challenging it's been for teachers to you know, all of a sudden sort of, you know, level up in a right. skill set they never knew that they needed and, you know, likely didn't get into the profession to, to teach in this manner, right? Like you you want to be in person with your kids to foster community and that magic and the chemistry that happens, right? The alchemy when everyone's in the same room. So it's been, you know, so challenging on them as well. I guess, you know, just to sort of really get real, you know, my, my wondering is for schools that already, you know, were you know, not doing a, a quality job of educating students pre-pandemic, right? It's, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. If we just double up or triple up on that instruction that wasn't already moving the needle, right? Are we going to get where we want to go? Like, what is this really going to take to close? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, we could like tell listeners at the beginning, if, you, if you're if you sick of all this, skip ahead 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Fast forward. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I mean, I've been so excited by what I've, what I've seen. The, so at the state level and now at the federal level, there are transformative programs, initiatives, new efforts happening on the ground across schools in this country, unlike anything we've ever seen before. So I brought up that summer school stat before, just, just take summer school. Last summer, we increased the number of students who attended some sort of summer enrichment program by 35%. That's like 15 million kids. Cleveland is an example where students miss a lot of school. Summer is that time. It can be make or break. They expanded their student attendance by seven times. Seven times the number of kids in Cleveland went to learn, went to summer camp, nature exploration, STEM programs. And it's not just like school or learning. It's literally like enrichment. It's going out into to camps and museums. And so that's going to be continuing this summer. There has been an inordinate and just exciting amount of investment in, in tutoring and after school. President Biden in his State of the Union made a call to action for 250,000 new tutors to come off from the sidelines to come into our schools and provide extra instruction. I've traveled around with the secretary to schools and you're seeing new learning pods and pullout groups because for the first time ever, the schools have had the money to do that. You're seeing infrastructure upgrades, schools that have had, you know, lead in the pipes, ventilation systems built in the 30s, be totally upgraded, like once in a generation opportunity. You know, I think that this money is going to run out. It is meant to be sort of a stimulus. But the connective tissues that are being built between different parts of communities 
and the approaches to, we didn't even mention social emotional learning. These are skills and initiatives that once they're started up, they're transforming the way that our schools have done this before, it's transforming the way that they're educating. And, and I, it's, it's, it's really exciting. And, you know, we don't have the luxury of sort of a silver bullet or a panacea, a a one pronged solution to a giant system such as the public education system that we have in our country. So it really is interesting to hear all the different levers, you know, and that you guys have gotten off the ground and, and in such a short time and so effectively. So that absolutely does inspire a lot of optimism. Really appreciate you sharing that. I would say for listeners, you know, the, the whole point of the investment was to spur community participation. So we always encourage people to check in with their school district, check in with their principal, their superintendent, and learn about the plan that they have built for how they're going to spend this money because it must be posted publicly and include input and participate. You know, are there things that you think your school community don't have that they need? And whether that's new tutors, new books, new ed technology, new after school programs. I just want to give one one example of this, I think, puts it in perspective. When I was working for Governor Lamont before the pandemic, you know, we like dreamed of being able to do a computer science pilot or a career connected program for high school students or a new social emotional curriculum in our schools. And we had about, you know, any given year, about 10 to $15 million of extra money that we could play with to put something like that together. In the next three years, Connecticut has $1 billion to spend on educational programs. Wow. When was the last time in you know recent history that schools had access to this much capital? I think Danielle mentioned earlier, Race to the Top came out of the American sort of recovery stimulus bill in 2009. And were the amounts comparable? I'm glad you asked. It's another way to put this into perspective. The Race to the Top program that sort of everybody talks about is this big legacy new funding program. Oh my gosh, it's this exciting time. That was $4 billion. Wow. Total. And the American Rescue Plan is $121 billion. Wow. Yeah. So I think our message is just the world is your oyster. There's a lot of problems, but there's so much opportunity to build new and great things. And so we just really encourage at the local level to dream big. Thank you, Nick. That's, you know, I think that it's really nice to end conversations like this on a hopeful note, because to your point, there's so much digging one could do. So I think it's really exciting to hear that there's a lot of interesting and innovative opportunities that schools have in the years to come. So thanks for shedding light on that. To wrap up the episode, we like to do this kind of extra credit fill in the blank answer. So we're going to ask you just a few questions. The first one is, if you could tell parents one thing, it would be? As a non-parent myself, (laughs) I would say partnership is key. Try to be close with all aspects of your child's educational experience. And, you know, it takes a village. So try to make it feel like one. Awesome. Our next question is, the role of schools is to? Ooh, that's a good one. I think the role of schools is to really ignite that passion in students for, to sort of love and be curious about the world and to ignite this self-discovery process and help students understand like, what, what do they personally love and enjoy? What are they good at? What do they like to do? 
and then empower them, give them the tools, empower them with the tools to take those passions and be successful. And then lastly, one thing that gives you hope for the future of education is? What we've been seeing this past year from everyday superhero, on the ground teachers, bus drivers, librarians, school administrators. I mean, I think they are really the heroes of this pandemic, along with our frontline sort of medical workers. Couldn't agree more. Yes, they have not only just risen to the occasion, but absolutely sort of surpassed any and all expectations and gives me a lot of hope for our system. Thank you, Nick. We have learned so much from you this episode and are so lucky to get a glimpse into the amazing work that you're doing at the federal level. If our listeners want to continue to follow your work and your journey, where can they find you? Ooh, I have a pretty unexciting Twitter account <laughs> with about 60 followers. Believe it's at Nick Simmons. Feel free to check that out. But you can always also email me at the, my department email, nick.simmons at ed.gov. Awesome. You heard it here, folks. We got the email. That's a big one. So <laughs> thank you so much, Nick. This was really, really fun. And we appreciate you being on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me and, and for all that you're doing. Awesome. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Silly Questions. We hope you enjoyed learning from our guests as much as we did, and we'll see you back next week. For more information on this podcast, please visit our website at nosillyquestionspodcast.com and check out our Instagram account at nosillyquestionspodcast.com.